0: Welcome to the sixth episode of the Dumbarton Oaks Byzantine Podcast Series. I am Anna Stavrakopoulou, the Programme Director in Byzantine Studies at Dumbarton Oaks, and we are joined today by Alessandra Bucossi. Hello,
1: my name is Alessandra Bucossi, and I'm Associate Professor
0: at Foscari in Venice. And Alberto Ravani.
2: Hello, I'm Alberto Ravani, and I'm um DPhil, PhD, student at the University of Oxford in Byzantine literature.
0: Alessandra Bucosi is Associate Professor of Byzantine Civilization at Ka Foscari University of Venice. She is a philologist and works on critical editions of Byzantine theological texts. She published the first edition of Andronikos Kamateros' Sacred Arsenal in 2014, and her second critical edition, Six Dialogues, by Nikitas of Thessaloniki, is in press now. Both books are published by Corpus Christianorum series Greca, Prepol's publisher. She is also the co-editor of three books dedicated to Emperor John II Komnenos, the art of editing medieval texts, and the division between the Latin and the Byzantine churches in the Middle Ages. Her most recent research project is the Repertorium Auctorum Polemicorum, a survey of Byzantine literature dedicated to the schism between Eastern and Western Christianity. She was a Dumbarton Oaks Fellow in 2007-2008. Alberto Ravani is a doctoral candidate in medieval and modern languages at the University of Oxford. His main research interests are Byzantine poetry, especially of the 12th century, philology and textual criticism. For his dissertation, he is working on a new critical edition of Zetis's Allegories of the Iliad, together with an introduction that prefaces and explains the edited text. He is currently secretary of the Oxford University Byzantine Society. They will be discussing Umberto Eco's Baudolino, published in 2000, following the adventures of a 12th-century character who's roaming the real and imaginary Christian world. Baudolino from Alessandria, Echo's birthplace, visits Constantinople in 1204 and bumps into Nikitas Konyatis, the prime Byzantine historian of the 12th century. Baudolino's adventures take him through both known and unknown territories, where he encounters not only real characters, but also figments of Echo's fertile imagination, presenting a thoroughly enjoyable narrative for all tiers of audiences. They'll answer questions like How is Echo's novel written for both well read scholars and fiction aficionados? What kinds of texts have influenced his narrative? From which eras and traditions? And why is the novel a useful read for Byzantinists and medieval scholars more broadly? Today, we will be discussing a novel which is a first for our podcast. That is to say, the other our other guests discussed articles or chapters or books or scholarly books. But Professor Bucossi had the wonderful idea to suggest a novel by Umberto Eco, Baudolino, which was published in 2000. And uh, I'm very curious, Alessandra, if you could tell us why you selected Baudolino, I really like the selection, but uh, tell us more about your thoughts when you were selecting it for our discussion. Well,
1: I have to be a bit autobiographical now (laughs) because uh, when I was doing my PhD in Oxford, the novel came out, it was published in 2000, so I started in 2001. And uh, I read it through a couple of weeks and I got very excited And now that you ask me a book that was uh, important during my life as a Byzantinist, I thought about that book. I thought it was something a bit different from the rest, amusing, funny, hilarious. And I thought it was a good idea to talk about Byzantine studies from another point of view. And so I decided to invite Alberto, who is in fact doing now his PhD in Oxford. So I thought that was a good idea to have two people from two
0: different ages. Wonderful. So uh, uh, Alberto, was that the first time that you read the book or had you read it before Professor Bucosi suggested this reading?
2: No, it was it was the first time I read it. Um, I read um, the name of the rose at school because in Italy is um, a very famous book is like a school text where everyone reads it. But I I, I heard of Baudolino, but I never read it. And um, I, I really enjoyed it. Like I really enjoy reading it. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you, uh, to be here and to have uh, had the chance uh, to read it.
0: This is wonderful. Uh, I was wondering, so if you could tell us more about the novel, if each of you would like to describe the novel very broadly, very, very broadly, including the effect it had on you, a bit in, in more details, in a sense, to facilitate our conversation. Okay,
1: well, there are some basic things that I'd like to say about this, this novel. It's an adventurous novel. I mean, you can travel, if you read this novel, throughout real places and fantastic places. You can meet real people and fantastic people. Some of them are invented by Umberto Eco. Some of them are, were invented during the centuries. Um, so what I liked about it is, is that is a book about the Middle Ages and really gives you the sense of what a medieval author was doing, putting together different sources, different authors, different mm, texts that he had read, and creating something new. Uh, Umberto, Eco could describe it as a work of bricolage which is a fantastic description because in fact, this is the creation of something new, but starting from pieces that we have in front of us. And I think this is really the essence of the middle age somehow, even when we think about the cathedrals and all the remains from the Roman art uh, that were included in the big cathedrals that is something that amazes me every time I think about it. And I think Baudolino is exactly the superb (laughs) representation of how you can be a medieval author even in the 21st century. Then there is something else that I'd like to say about Baudolino, but also about, let's say, the experience of reading Baudolino being a scholar of Byzantine studies and especially a scholar of Byzantine studies that who deals with the 12th century. Because in fact, both Alberto and I, we deal with the 12th century. So in that respect, we we use the same material every day. And Eco himself said that the Middle Ages are kind of a cultural revolution. And I really think the 12th century is again the century of the Cultural Revolution. And I think Baudolino is an amazing and amusing portrait of this century. And that's what I loved about it, because it takes into account all the most important people you can meet in the 12th century, both in the East and in the West, both in the Latin realm and in the Byzantine uh, Empire. Then there is another point of view that I'd like to share with you, which is the one of the philologists. Because I think the majority of the podcasts are done by historians. And I love to listen to historians, but is well, there are very few occasions in which you you listen to a philologist because usually philologists do not talk about their studies or not so much. And I think Alberto and I, I mean, we have been discussing the book uh, in these days, of course, because we both read the book and then we met and discuss it at length and we create even a word file because we are both philologists. And so we went through Baudolino's sources. We created a kind of apparatus fontium for Baudolino in these days, put together something like 14 pages of references, and that was really a funny way of doing our normal job, looking for sources, but on a contemporary novel. That I think was also something that strange and, and um, interesting at the same time. So we read Baudolino, first we enjoyed it. We laughed a lot because it's fantastic. But then we, we, we thought about Baudolino again, and we basically went through the book as a normal, you know, uh, philologist does. Doing a bit of textual uh, criticism, looking for sources, looking when for the places where Eco basically copied entire chunks from, for example, Niketas Koniaktis. And for now, I think I'll leave a bit
0: of space for Alberto, and then we'll I'll go on. Well, uh, uh, yes, it seems that uh, you have the 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 beginnings of the publication there. So I think you should go ahead maybe and, and, and publish this because that would be interesting to other people as well. But I'll let Alberto talk about his experience now.
2: Yes, thank you. Um, I mean, the, um, the things that I like the most in, in Baudelino is uh, the sort of concept of, uh, of truth and lies. And um, and how those are sort of like intermingled through the whole um, novel. I mean, Baudolino is a um, a story of a fictional character, but the setting is historical and really really precise. And uh, Baudolino meets many historical um, figures like Frederick Barbarossa, but also Niketas So I mean, it's not just an historian, but he's also um, a real. Um, person and inside that uh, there are uh, sometimes there are those sort of other imaginary characters, and it's really difficult to know uh, which ones are. I mean, one has to sort of like research and do the, the work. Alessandra and I uh, did um, in the last few days, to sort of like find out um, which ones are completely fictional, which ones are real historical character, and we and uh, but there are also some which are um, sort of fictional in their name but they um, are created or modelled on a real character. One example is Abdul, who's modelled on uh, Geoffrey Roudel, which was a provincial uh, poet and um, who lived nearly a generation before um, Abdul's sort of fictional character, um, the character of Abdul. And yeah, um, um, this is, and also in, in the things that are told in, um, in, the, in the novel, uh, very often, they, they make up entire legends, entire myths, but always starting from um, sort of real things, or sort of things they've heard. And when I, I mean, I work on and uh, all the allegories of the Iliad. And uh, so Tessas sort of reads uh, the Iliad as if Homer had written an allegorical text, which we, we know Homer didn't, but I always wondered, like, did the Byzantines who, who read Setsus really thought that Homer was allegorizing? And this novel kind of sort of like suggests an answer to this question. And sort of Echo imagines that the, the, sort of medieval people didn't really believe in what they wrote. But in a way, if it was written, and this is sort of a motive of the novel, if it's written, it must be true somehow or if something is there and it's written, it has a sort of value and uh, yeah.
0: So you're saying both of you that uh, it's clear that the novel has one dimension for the lay audience, for people who are not Byzantinists, who just like to read the novels or uh, historical novels, Umberto Eco's novels. And then there are so many other layers for people like you who know facts and dates and people and characters. So one gets an extra thrill, isn't it? Oh, yes. I think this
1: novel is one of those fantastic novels you can read coming from very different background. I mean, and perceive very different (laughs) books. I mean, you live very different adventures because if you know the period, and it's quite funny because Alberto and I, we know better the Byzantine sources than the Latin sources. So we had to go through <laughs> also all the Latin sources that, of course, we, we have a more general knowledge of. So we enjoyed also the fact that Echo is so precise uh, in quoting his sources and so precise when he quotes events that you can easily follow, for example, Cognatis, because he goes through... The, the, the history of the period. If you don't know anything about the period, however, still is an amazing book because it's plenty of fantastic monsters invented that are very funny. And the, one of the characteristics of ECHO is that it's a very serious scholar. I think it's, in Italy, it's one of our, you know, we are so proud of having had such a fantastic scholar with the knowledge of the Middle Ages that was superb, but is is able to talk to everyone because you can read the recipes of the kefteles in a book. (laughs) You can read the recipe of the focaccia, the Genoese typical kind of bread. You can read um, everything about Greek wines. Um, So it's funny. I mean, it's funny and it's able to talk to everyone at very different levels. I mean, there are those parts like, you certainly remember the name of the rose. I mean, these long philosophical discussions. For example, when it, it, it talks uh, uh, with Ipatia, his lover, they have a very very long discussion, which is based of gnosticism and is complicated, of course, like the name of the rose was. But at the same time, in, in other parts of the book, I mean, you, you just laugh. For example, it talks about uh, life uh, in Alexandria. I don't want to offend uh, my fellow Italian, uh, but it's not a big city. Today is not a big city. Um, And when it talks about it, it's, it's quite funny. Or it talks about the fog, for example, because Alexandria is famous for being a very foggy place. Or when he talks about the Genoese, and now I I will not offend anyone apart from myself because I'm Genoese, but he talks about us and he says, for example, that we are stingy and we love money and we are not very generous. So even if you don't know anything about the middle age or the 12th century or, you know, Niketas Cognatis or whatever, very difficult passage from Aristotle, However, this novel is funny. So, yes, this is, I think, Echo's magic touch. I mean, it can convert even very difficult things into something that can be, in a book that can be enjoyable and readable by everyone. So, yes.
0: Wonderful. I was wondering if Alberto would like to share Something that you discovered when you compiled the list of the sources, something that really stood out and that you really enjoyed, you know, both the original source and what Echo did with it.
2: Well, the main um, sort of discovery is probably um, towards the end of the book, when sort of Baudolino starts his uh, journey uh, towards East to meet uh, Prester John, which is the, the real cat, the real sort of research of his life. He meets the deacon, Deacon John, and the end of one chapter, which is dedicated to the, the dialogues Baudolino um, and the deacon, Head and this is modeled on Italo Calvino's Invisible Cities. And uh, The Invisible Cities is one of my favorite books, if not my favorite book. So I, I loved it uh, when, I, when I found out. And of um, course, because I've read it so many times and I know the quotes sort of by heart in a way. And another one is the one I've already mentioned. So the identification of Abdul with uh, Geoffrey Rudel. And, uh, but I, I had this in mind because it's, um, Imogen is the one who sang the Amor de Lon, so the far love for the Countess of Tripoli. And, and in, in the book, we have Abdul who sort of sings, uh, writes poems to the far away princess, which is a princess you will never meet. He, he just dreamed of her once. But I sort of was finally convinced of this identification when Abdul dies, I don't want to sort of spoiler the, the plot, but at some point um, he dies, and the death of Abdul is reconstructed on the life, the manuscripts, the Joffrey del Manuscripts sort of say Joffrey had, which is a sort of imaginary life in a way, sort of not fictional, but it's really difficult that he could have done that. And that was like the the proof that, oh yeah, it must be. And so those are the two ones, but the the Invisible Cities probably is the one who sort of struck me because it's a book which is really dear to me.
0: So it seems that there is intertextuality with contemporary Italian novels as well, because Italo Calvino is a 20th century author, as we all know. And uh, and the question, I was wondering whether Calvino had read medieval accounts as well. I remember I read this as a student. This is a a favorite book for many of us, Alberto. So I think there there are lots of threads there, but you would know better. And what about you, Alessandra? Do you have any passage or any of these uh, patchwork pastiches that he did in the book that you prefer that you would choose well, yes,
1: <laughs> because I think it, Echo is the only scholar in the world who could render heresies something funny. I love that passage when he um, list all these different fantastic people, Maudolino you know, meets or this Kiapods, the blemi, the Panocians, the giant, and for each one of them he identify a different heresy. And actually it's quite accurate. So you can see those who are Sabellian, those who are adoptionists, those who um, believe in the procession of the Holy Spirit from the Father, only those who believe in the procession of the Holy Spirit from the Father and the Son, those who are Donatists, those who are Aryan. And it's very funny because you don't expect anything like this. And, and the passage is very interesting because, in fact, Bautolino and his friends, they identify these different monsters according to their monstrosity. So if you don't have the head or if you are, have only one leg or something like this. But they don't identify themselves as somebody with something wrong in their body, but something wrong in what they believe. So, in fact, they don't even see each other having a characteristic that is not normal in their body. But they say they think in a wrong way. That's what they distinguish them. But on the top of this, it was able to add, again, something that you don't expect, even, even if you are a Byzantinist, even if you know the heresies, even if you are laughing at everything, then you discover that it invents some, like the Artotiritis, those who believe that Jesus consecrates bread and cheese. And that was for me, because I studied heresies, I studied the procession of the Holy Spirit, that was Absolutely funny. And I, I thought it was genius for that reason. That's why I'm, I wanted to propose Baudolino, because that part on the eresis is really a way to, to make us fall in love with our subject. Our friends ask us, why are you studying these things? And they think they are boring. But in fact, Eko was a serious scholar who could see also an hilarious aspect a funny approach to something that is actually extremely serious. So yes, that was my favorite part, in fact. I I laughed like crazy when I read
0: it, both the first time and the second time. Uh, I want to ask you, um, was there any glossary in the book? I mean, are there any notes Or, I mean, is it just a novel? There are no notes whatsoever and and you are expected to navigate through all of that on your own. No, there are no notes. No, that, That's why we were laughing
1: about ourselves doing the apparatus of the footnotes. Well, we could propose it. I mean, the La Nave di Teseo, uh, who the new publisher that in fact was created through the help of, so, of Umberto Eco before he died, uh, perhaps would be interested. Who knows? A new edition with an apparatus of footnotes, that would could be, I mean, could be interesting, who knows? Because if you go to a library and you buy the book and you don't know anything about this period, you don't cannot
0: appreciate the fact that is such a learned book, no? You should definitely publish something then, you know. All of this effort, I think, should go into something which would be also related to the reception of Byzantium, wouldn't you say? I mean, the the, the Bautolino is part of the the 20th century reception of Byzantium, for sure. Oh, sure,
1: sure. But one of the things that I loved more than anything else is a new way to look at Byzantium, in fact usually you know that Byzantium is like the far east in medieval studies you know it's something like okay the center was in the western part of Europe and Byzantium is very far away and there are all these ideas about you know the big discussion about what we mean by eastern by oriental I mean that's a long discussion that we are not going to do of course today but Byzantium is considered in something that comes from east and should stay in the east while Boudellina goes beyond constantinople they they want to discover the the kingdom of Prestigeon, so they they went far away from there they follow alexander the great so from the new point of view byzantium is westerner is the really the West, and is not the East anymore. And I think this is something that we really need, even today, again, we need to restate the fact that uh, we cannot conceive Byzantium and the Byzantine civilization as oriental but it is part of European history and we need you know to to remind ourselves this (laughs) important notion that is part of European history and so Baudelin again is a way to look at this in a funny way in a amusing way but still you know uh, restating something that for our studies is very
0: important. Wonderful. I would like to ask Alberto, because uh, you said, Alessandra, that you had conversations, the two of you, about the book. If you noticed during these conversations a different angle that has to do with the, the age difference that you and Alessandra have and the fact that you you belong to a different historical moment altogether.
2: Ooh. I think that I um, really liked of the book, um, which is connected to what I said, um, answering the, for your first question. So that I, as I said the sort of relationship between truth and, and lies. And um, there's also a great emphasis in this book on utopias and on imagination and this is sort of like pushes the boundaries forwards. There is a, a beautiful quote in which, because the whole sort of novel is structured as a dialogue between Baudolino and Niketas Koniatis in uh, in 1204. So the during and just a bit, after the sort of conquest of Constantinople. And at some point, uh, Baudelino uh, tells Nicetas, I hadn't realized that imagining other words, you end up changing this one. Also, this quote, it was really powerful, also thinking about my work as a scholar and a scholar of sort of literature, essentially. So we keep sort of talking about ancient words, but also about imaginary words, the imaginary words of Homer in a way and of all the other authors. And But this has an impact also in our life. And this is something that sort of, yeah, I, I really, really enjoyed in the novel, this sort of like, and also in the, um, the passage that Alessandra just mentioned about all the different heresies and how there was a utopia, the sort of echo invented, that all those different heretical uh, people with different beliefs could live in peace altogether. They didn't like the fact that they believed in different things, but still there was peace. And it's a way, yeah, of creating a new world, imaginary world and using words like improving the one we are living in.
0: So uh, maybe after asking you all of these questions, I was wondering if you, both of you, wanted to say something that we haven't discussed yet and that you were you really wanted to share with our audience.
2: Yes, I mean, um, the two, just a couple of things. First of all, I mean, it's something that Alessandro already sort of uh, said, and I wanted to sort of stress it in another way. If, If we look at the book, Constantinople is central. Uh, because the, um, as I said before, is set in Constantinople. And uh, it starts from where Baudolino was born, so is in Alessandria in northern Italy. And then it goes up to the um, eastern land of Deacon John. So and Constantinople is at the center of this sort of imaginary of this word, which is half imaginary and half true. And it, it brings what the, the, the city sort of we, we study and uh, the Byzantine culture at the center of of the medieval world which as, as Westerners we are we tend to sort of like see everything sort of like German, German, Italy, and sort of more based on Central Europe but uh, the actual center is a bit more east. so and uh, this is one thing that I really like in the novel and the other one is, the emphasis, especially in the end on on research, which is also connected to the utopia because research doing research is doing utopia. and at some point during the novel they, start to look for the holy grail and in the end even if they somehow sort of I didn't want to sort of spoiler it but even if they they are close to the solution or to to having found it two of uh, Baudelino's friends say that they still have to sort of like go on and keep sort of doing research and keep looking for the holy grail. Um, one of the friends say, I realized this evening that I must not have the, the sort of grail or give it to anyone, but only keep alive the flame of the search of it, uh, which is what, what we do in a way with, um, with our tradition, with what we study. So we um, keep alive the flame.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you very much, Alberto. And, and you, Alessandra? Well, yes, there is a, a passage
1: oh, but a uh, uh, part of the book that I think is very interesting I, I mean you ask us what is the difference between Alberto and me according to our age in reading this book and I think that Alberto is still focusing on his future of research but well, I'm going to say something about teaching actually <laughs> so probably we have two different <laughs> approaches now I mean researching and, and giving to the students what we have researched
0: there
1: is the, the Nice passage about the the famous letter of Chris John, but Eco proposes a solution for a passage that uh, is unclear actually in the letter because there is a a, a word that doesn't mean anything, which is hierarcham, and, and Baudolino you know, resolve it in the book, dividing into veram, arcam. so talking about the holy grail again. So I think that we should also use something like this to explain to our students what um, an edition is, for example, you know, when we don't understand words, because during the transmission, there was a mistake. Somebody who copied a book, who copied the manuscript actually, made a mistake, it couldn't understand one word. And so we have the production of you know, different variants and mistakes. And I think we, we should always try to find you know, a nice way to explain the, the work of a philologist to our student. And uh, an example like this could be something funny. Because in, that, in those pages, Baldolino explains exactly the fact that the letter was uh, tampered with and was copied in a, in, a, in a way that, in fact, was a clear sign of the hand of a new author who changed a bit the text. So that uh, is very interesting. And also, in fact, when he, he talks about the letter and Frederick asks, what is this letter true letter or is not, and Baudolin said, well, I put together the membra disiecta, so that's also something that is interesting for us, like the medieval author who puts together different pieces and creates something new, although the pieces are the old ones, and I mean, I'm going back to what we said at the beginning of our conversation, but I think it's something very important, especially for Byzantine literature that somehow some approaches is considered like a repetition of uh, old knowledge. is not an, a repetition. It's the new way to put things together. And this is done typically in the Middle Ages. So this is the typical me- medieval approach. And we should think about it is a, in what it is. This is the medieval approach. It's not something that is similar to what we do now when we create a text. It's something different, but it's something new if we compare with what we do, because it's something different. And, and Umberto Eco was really, I think, a medieval man in this respect, because he was able to put together all things and to give a new... a new. Um, Product using bits and pieces from the classical literature, the medieval literature, and also, as we said, the contemporary literature. But also, I mean, all the, the, those who studied this text said um, influences from film, like I don't know Mario Monicelli films, or from cartoons. I mean, Umberto Eco was really a person interested in everything, every cultural aspect of our life so he was really able to put everything together and that I think is something that makes this book you know, very interesting
0: Have you ever, uh, Alessandra used the book, uh, have you suggested it, as uh, recommended it as a reading in one of your classes I mean, do, do Byzantines do that?
1: I do every time I teach the um, sack of Constantinople the Fourth Crusade there is in a passage in which the description comes exactly from Nikita's Cognatis. And so I usually read both uh, the Italian translation by Anna Meschini-Pontani, who actually published the three books of the translation of Cognatis and are Superb, plenty of footnotes, and uh, really give the sense of sport fantastic author was Cognatis. I read her translation and at the same time I read Echos' version of it and I usually ask the student which one is the original one, the true one, as Maudolino would say. But now we know that in fact, I mean, both of them are true in the sense that one is Maudolino's invention and Echos' invention and the other one is the Cognatis version. And usually the student, I mean, some students recognize Baudolino. So
0: yes, it's still a book that is enjoyable. Yes. So the, this is the translation that Echo read. So the the Pontani translation was there before he wrote Baudolino.
1: Well, not the third volume, so I'm not sure if they were in contact or something like this because, in fact, the third volume was not out because it came out on 2014. But the other two, the first two volumes of the Fondazione Valla Mondadori translations were already published, so yes, I would say that, in fact, in some cases it seems that is kind of quoting word by word, even without footnote, (laughs) which is something
0: that students shouldn't do. Yes, of course. Do you have any concluding thoughts? I mean, what I can say for myself is that I learned a lot about, uh, about Dolino, and it seems that Echo is using this method that he used in other books as well, where he dealt with the Middle Ages, So he used his vast knowledge of the sources of history combined with his wild imagination. So, I mean, this seems to be a thread, a unifying thread in in his novels. But I will let the two of you finish the podcast with your own. Uh, I'll give the last word to the two of you.
1: Well, there is one thing that I'd like to say, really. And and this is, do read Baudolino, but do read also Pognatis. Because reading the two together is amazing. I mean, helps you in um, approaching cognatis from a completely different point of view. Because we usually read sources because we want to check that uh, the detail we know about the period or about an event or some. Or, person, whatever, are correct, and we want to create a footnote, and we want to be precise in our references. While in these days, looking for the, the passages where Echo was in fact copying Coniatis, I went back to Honiatis and I read it as it was a novel, as it was what it is, something written to be read. And not only to be cut into pieces because we need to demonstrate something on to back our opinion, but it was written also to move your your thoughts, uh, your impressions. It gives you an impression of what was, you know, a living the city, a city that Cognatis loved so much, and the stress that he lived in those days, and also the fear, and it's really touching. It is. And probably for the first time, I read something from the Byzantine period, like it was really written by a human being. Well, usually we have this kind of uh, distant approach to our sources because they are kind of instruments, tools of our job. So that's my suggestion at the end of the
0: podcast. Well, this is truly wonderful. Thank you so much. So Echo's inspiration might have come out of Konyatis, maybe. I don't know how he read the text and how fascinated or inspired he was by Cognatis' text.
1: Well, I, I, I think he was. I think he was really inspired by Cognatis because in fact, uh, while well, we discussed also about the fact that every time he talks about Cognatis, he describes Cognatis eating or wanting to eat something, always hungry, always talking about food or things like this, which is probably... Well, in fact, it, when you read Cognatis, you find a lot of passages about food. I was actually thinking uh, that we should put together all of them. But yes, I think it, it, Cognatis became the guide of Echo in Constantinople, in fact, also because he describes, you know, all, when he describes all the the fires during the fourth crusade it goes through constantinople and Cognati says that was burned that other the other court um, neighborhood was burned and that there were damages here damages there so there is a continuous description of the city that i think echo echo enjoyed yeah and another thing in fact that Related to the fact that it's a good description of the 12th century. I think it is, it is also a good description of the fact that the 12th century is in a kind of international uh, century. I mean, people are moving around, are meeting, are talking to each other. And the Crusades, well, let's say a good part of the Crusades is that people were moving. So they were meeting, they were you know, learning about, although in some cases, in a traumatic way. And so you, you Baudolino introduced you to, to the medieval Paris and the philosopher in Paris, and then to medieval Constantinople, to medieval Rome, to medieval Milan, to medieval Alessandria. I mean, you, you, you travel
0: around Europe with this book. And that's also very interesting, yes, I think. Wonderful, wonderful. Alberto, would you like to add something?
2: Yeah, I mean, I agree with what Alessandra said. And um, I, I would just say that, like, I, I also encourage um, to read about Lino and to look at it or read it as a fresco of, of the 12th century of these, this beautiful age and to get... I think that the, the most important thing that you get out of the book is the feeling of that age, as also Alessandra said, Um Earlier in the conversation. And this is probably the most important thing for a scholar, a scholar who works in the 12th century, a scholar's work on Byzantium.
0: Thank you. Thank you both. This was truly fascinating. Thank you. Podcast musical theme is from the Concerto in E-flat, Dumberton Oaks by Igor Stravinsky, recorded by the Smithsonian Chamber Orchestra, Kenneth Slowick conducting. As always, thank you for listening, and we hope you join us again in the next episode.